Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. On this episode, we're back behind the proverbial roller rink dumpster trying to bring out the tunes and artists that were either forgotten or didn't get the proper recognition in the first place. John Thompson of TrueTunes.com has returned to help us along by telling all he knows about the artists Prodigal, Bourgeois Tag, and first up, Steve Scott. Steve Scott is like the artist's artist. And he and actually, I guess music isn't even the primary driver for him. He's a poet. And music is one way to deliver poetry. And maybe for him, it wasn't the first thing that he thought of. He, he really came out of the art scene in London and in the 60s, that kind of whole counterculture thing. Mm-hmm. And he just uh, saw that... Spoken word poetry had a much more limited audience than if you took the same things and you put it in music. My first exposure to Steve was his record that came out through Exit Records, Love in the Western World. He never sold us on his X-ray eyes. He didn't come on like an extraterrestrial. Hanging out in human disguise. He was flesh and blood. Every song on that record, I probably know every breath of those songs. It was very new wave, very early 80s, perfect for its time, way ahead of what Christian music was doing. And it was one of the many exit records that label out of Sacramento. Really, everything they put out could have and should have been functioning in the mainstream. That was, And that was their standard. And Steve was certainly no different. But a little bit of background, he had come from England... Uh, and he, like I said, he was active in the art scene, not just the Christian art scene either, but the kind of counterculture uh, art scene in the 60s. And he fell in with this group of English Christians who definitely approached applying their faith to art in a very different way than what would happen uh, in evangelicalism later. Uh, and I... I became friends very tangentially with that group later as I, I was too young. I mean, I wasn't even born when they started doing what they were doing, but I, but I was such a fan. But people like Steve Fairney, uh, who was in a band called the Technos. also made a board game he created a board game um rupert loydell uh there was this crowd of people in england and they were absolutely committed to being best in class in terms of their work completely engaged with the quote-unquote real world they weren't creating an alternative christian bubble they were right there in the middle of everything and then they were just uh, representing their philosophies and ideas in the marketplace, you know, 
as it were. They were doing with alternative new wave emerging thought and progressive art just what Tolkien and Lewis had done. Like they were just out there. And that's the scene that Steve had first kind of encountered and was friends with. And it, it kills me. One year, Fernie and Rupert and others came to Cornerstone and were speaking at Cornerstone. And Steve was there and the whole crowd. And I was just, uh, I mean, and I, I had had a couple of them write for True Tunes, like special columns and uh, Steve was a regular contributor, actually, uh, for True Tunes. He used to do a column for True Tunes uh, called For Art's Sake. And it was this really heady, awesome, philosophical thing. They invited me to come with them to Chicago and spend a whole day just going around Chicago thinking arty thoughts. And, <laughs> and that's not what they said. But, um, and I couldn't because I had to do True Tunes stuff at Cornerstone. And I had, to, I had to skip it. And it just killed me because it was such a missed opportunity. Just brilliant, funny, smart people who approached what they did so differently. But that's the, that was the framework out of which, uh, I'm not saying that those were the people that started it, but that there was a very different mentality. Greenbelt Festival came out of that same mentality. Again, not, but those people were probably tangentially involved in Greenbelt, but Greenbelt was a festival in England and it involved Christians and arts and music. But there were mainstream bands that, like U2, you know, Midnight Oil, that would play at Greenbelt, that would never play at a Christian music festival in America. But Greenbelt was more culturally engaged and less about being separate, only Christian. And actually, at least one, but I think several of the people that were involved in starting Greenbelt were the same people involved in starting Cornerstone. Like Henry Wong in particular, who was a member of Jesus People USA in Chicago, had been over in England because a group from the same kind of hippie commune, Jesus freak people uh, in America had gone over to England and started doing outreach stuff in London through a musical that they created. And Henry was a part of that. Anyway, lots of tangents, but there, but there's a, there was a different way of imagining doing art in the world as a person of faith, mm -hmm. there was, I'm just going to be as good as I can be and just do it. And then there was, I'm going to find all of the people that agree with me and we're going to get on a special bus and we're going to go over here and we're going to make product for each other. Mm -hmm. I so resonated with the Steve Scott, Steve Fairney uh, mentality that that Greenbelt English thing was like, I romanticized it mm -hmm. for sure. But when I finally got a chance to, to meet them, I just had them on such a pedestal. And frankly, the work, the, the work stands up. This might be a side question, but are you aware of, like, sometimes in America when, like, the, the secular so-called or mainstream media figures out somebody's a Christian, all of a sudden they, as you, I think one of your terms you use, they get short bust. Yeah, I know. That's a bad term. I, I shouldn't use that. I, I drive a short bus. I'll give <laughs> oh, you a you do? Okay. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I know in England sometimes there's still there's similar problems. In fact, we've talked about previously the after the fire song. Too many people try to tell me that I shouldn't say the things I do.
but they pointed out that sometimes they were treated differently when it got found out that they were Christians. Did Greenbelt have the same stigma? Well, I never did make it to Greenbelt. I got invited one year and I couldn't afford uh, to go. I just wonder um, if that. If so, play, I'm just saying I can't. I can't, can't answer it firsthand. But I do. I do know that um, I, I had many friends who played there, and they said that it, if you came from an American perspective, you would go there and say, "Oh my gosh, it's so progressive and it's so cool and it's so mm-hmm. different." But I also heard from other people saying, "Well, it was still not like there were still people who said they're just they're Christians." And there was a mm-hmm. England uh, and you know Europe was definitely heading in such a post christian way Mm -hmm. that there were definitely people that would look down their nose at you if you said you actually believed that stuff but the thing about the counterculture is you kind of and the the punk culture is if somebody looks down their nose at you then it's like well f you man like Uh, of course that just fuels your energy like people like fernie and uh in particular i think and now he was an exceptionally good artist and actor and mm-hmm. charlie chaplin impersonator exactly, right, yeah. right right so so when the fact that he was a christian his work was so good mm-hmm. that that people didn't uh question the work it's like tolkien now if people find out that to- now maybe when they make modern films about him they leave that out right yeah. and that's what yeah i've actually heard off. Uh, with, with C.S. Lewis, I, I remember reading an essay, someone on the political left, once they had realized now that Narnia was Christian propaganda in their minds, right. and it ruined it for them. So you, sure. you, it still happens to some people. But some sure, people, sure, you're sure. right, it's so cool, they're like, ah, I can look, overlook that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that would be the U2 thing. And, yeah. and to me, U2 in the 80s was the the culmination of the vision, I believe, that Steve Scott and those those people in the seventies had, which is if we're good enough at what we're doing and if our vision for this is complete, it won't matter. Mm-hmm. And not only will they accept us, cause that's almost less important. Our ideas will find purchase in the marketplace of ideas. Our seeds will find the right soil. And, and so you see how you too comes out of that, uh, that mentality. And so even early on in you two's career, when they have the opportunity to become a capital C Christian, capital B band, and they say, no, we're going to slug it out here and we're going to take the slings and arrows because they believe that they would have more of an impact shifting things. Now, you can, we'll have that discussion another time. But as a, as a kid, when I heard Steve Scott's Love in the Western World record, it's making commentary about what is really love, mm-hmm. what is the Western world, right? Now, as a 12, 13-year-old kid, I'd heard the talking heads already at this point. I'd heard Peter Gabriel. I'd heard lots of artists, wrang- the Beatles, you know, wrangling with this stuff. But I hadn't heard them do it from this particular perspective. And his record, that love and addiction will get you every time. It's a gig that don't pay, like they say. It's a crime. I'm sinking in confusion and I don't know who to call. And the writing's on the wall. I'm no goods at names and places, so don't get me to fight. I see you going through your paces in the darkness and the light. Do I need you for my mother or do I just want you for tonight? You'll have to bill me later. I just got to get it right. The song is new. The story's old. The beat is hot, but the blood runs cold. Love in the Western world. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm like 13 years old and I, I'm, I'm going, this is a new standard for me to set as a 
artist. I, I already had those urges as a songwriter, but I was 13, 12, whatever it was, 14. Like, I went to Cornerstone, I heard, I started to hear music, but it was like that lyric. Another quote-unquote song on the record, which is really a poem, it's called This Sad Music, and it's Steve reciting a poem about whales beaching themselves, which was happening, and, and I'd heard that story. But it's just this dark, haunting, ambient music, and this British voice speaking this poem. Now that I had never heard at that point. And, and it starts with this, you know, piano chord boom the whales are dying now hurling themselves upon the beaches black dice reckoned under the sun's watchful gaze black dice reckoned under the sun's watchful gaze there's sweat on the preacher's brow as he talks of damnation the whales are in love with no one they wanted to die without any explanation it was almost like the moody blues or something like that you know uh, mm -hmm. and it and it pulled me in and i i remember i was taking a calligraphy class in junior high you know learn in an uh, art class or something and i hand wrote all of the lyrics to this sad music and i memorized every single verse and i just went in there going what is this really about you know and at one point he goes into a character voice of like a tv preacher you know He's kind of mimicking uh, somebody talking about the culture wars and stuff like that. And it just was um, fascinating. And I realized much later, you don't realize at the time, you know, mm -hmm. when you're a kid, the things that spark stuff. But for me, I was like, okay, this guy is, along with the 77s, like it was in context. It wasn't like an island. It was like, mm -hmm. there's this colony of people who are smart, creative, dangerous. They're willing to poke at some things that the rest of my world was not poking at. I'm realizing that I happen to be in a church community that was willing to allow questioning institutions more than a lot of my friends now that I'm talking to a bunch of kids that grew up in a more evangelical context. I grew up in an Episcopal church that teach us a little bit more about questioning things. And that tradition that Steve and those guys were in, I found really stimulating. But I would say that along with groups like Vector and Charlie Peacock and uh, 77s and Daniel Amos, and then on the more punk, not not that they were punk stylistically, but the attitude, the res band stuff out of Chicago, more social justice driven hard rock stuff. That's really what made me say, I've got to do this. Like, mm -hmm. I've got to pick up a guitar. Um, I've got to start writing songs. And it's funny, if I was to, my buddy Rob and I wrote a song um, that I, I would say was very inspired by steve scott which was called the etheric medium and it was so dumb it was so dumb but it was like us trying to like be as yeah. philosophical we're searching for the etheric medium it finds no you know whatever yeah. it was like it was us as kids trying to be deep 
and trying to find a metaphor yeah. for what does it mean to talk about something that's shapeless and void, you know? Mm. And it's embarrassing now, but it's like, you know. Well, you gotta start somewhere. Minor characters. Minor characters. Only a few lines to say. Oh, the other thing that's interesting about Steve is, um, and a lot of us didn't know this until a little bit later, but he had fallen in with Larry Norman and Randy Stonehill. And for those who don't know, Larry Norman often credited as kind of the father of Christian rock. He didn't invent it by any stretch of the imagination, but he definitely was the lightning rod personality that kind of marketed it really well as a, a culture. And Randy Stonehill and Larry Norman went to England and they had a presence there and Steve met them. And Larry saw Steve and his talent and signed him to Solid Rock Records, which was the kind of label community that... Larry was building and Larry had had signed Tom Howard amazing artist um, had signed Mark Hurd um, and then Daniel Amos um, and so Steve's first musical project was a record that he was doing for Larry Norman's label but as happened with other yeah. Larry Norman projects it never came out um, it was finished, but it was never released for one reason or another. Many of the songs have later on found their way onto other projects. And okay. Randy Layton, uh, from Alternative Records and stuff, Randy has been the sort of caretaker of Steve's musical and, and other uh, work. And so Randy has has kind of um, helped some of those things to find. I think most of them have have found their way in one way or another. But as a project, I think I did have a cassette bootleg mm -hmm. uh, thing. But Steve and I were just talking about it last fall when he was here. He actually played in my living room and did a poetry recital thing, and which was yeah. so fun. And I interviewed him, which he'll be on my podcast at some point. We're waiting for the right time and to kind of frame it the right way. TrueTunes.com. That's right. So he, he kind of brushed up again, more than brushed up against. He, he fell in with Larry and did that record, which never came out. And he moved to L.A. because of that. And then things weren't happening. But he heard about the stuff going on up the coast in Sacramento. And so he migrated up there. And there's a church up there called Warehouse Ministries. And Warehouse had all these artists that were kind of affiliated to this really cool program. And that drew him in. And he started... The first thing that he did, there was a compilation record... Um, and Sangre or Sangra, I'm not sure, S-A-N-G-R-E Productions was what the church called their music um, project at that point. They put out this, this project, this compilation of all the different artists. There was a kind of a jazz rock group called uh, Thomas Goodliness and Panacea, which was Jimmy Abegg was in that thing with a guy named Thomas Goodliness. Um, there was different groups. But it was it was an arts hive. It was you know so Steve was always drawn to these kind of arts groups. It was that group in London. It was Larry and his solid rock thing, and now it was this group in Sacramento. And he wrote this awesome song that's basically it's called "Come Back Soon." Wearing out our lives to the rule book down to the last letter. Finer folks are kinder than they ever were. 
this drunken comeback scene. It's like, it sounds like people are like just wasted at the end of a bad party and they're waiting for their host to come back and refill their drinks. And it's about, it's about the evangelical or the, the church that's so obsessed with the rapture mm-hmm. that they're like, please, you know, yeah. come, come back. What's the, what's happening? We thought you were going to be back by now. And, and, and he's making a commentary in the song about kind of ridiculousness of the rapture fixation. And he wrote the song and then he didn't just sing it. He performed it. Like a, it's like a dramatic piece and the church people loved it so much that they put it on this compilation and they called the compilation come back soon. And almost like, I always wondered if they even really fully got it. Like, did they understand the subversive right. thing? And if they did, which I guess they must have, they, they were really, you know, making a pretty incendiary commentary to the American evangelical mm-hmm. establishment. But they really, I don't know that they, they were so far outside of the mainstream that that group was. But that led him into writing songs and working with the 77s, which was called the Scratch Band at that point. One of his songs makes it on to, at least one, um, makes it on to their first uh, record. So a song called A Different Kind of Light, which he wrote and had recorded a version of for that Larry Norman record. Took a shot at meditation, tied it like the old book said. All I got was more frustration, must have had the so Steve becomes a mentor, songwriter kind of guy for the 77s, for this band Vector, for other artists. And then he puts out his own project and his band is basically the 77s. So there's this whole community and he's part of it and he's contributing to it and they're, they're contributing to his stuff. Mm-hmm. After that runs its course, um, he records more stuff, but it's not until later. There's a, a record called Lost Horizons that Randy later put out. It was supposed to come out like so many things. There's all these great projects. And oh, it doesn't quite work out. But Randy Layton uh, really rescued a lot of that stuff. And so I was happy with True Tunes to, to take the stuff that Randy was putting out and to give it a platform and to sell as much of it as I could because I just thought, you know, Steve was so, so important. These minutes feel like seven days of marching round these Then in the 90s, Steve transitioned back into doing poetry stuff, and he started releasing these albums. That's when I first heard him, because I, I know on Michael Knott's label, I think they... Blonde Vinyl, yeah. Yeah, they put out a spoken word, maybe maybe more than one. Yeah, I know one for sure, maybe two, yeah. The butterfly Effect might have been effect, one. Right. Nothing much happened at first. I watched a couple of gulls fly into the hole by mistake, and a crumbling mansion of clouds sailed in gently after them. So he was doing the loops where he would go travel around the world and wander and mm-hmm. find these creative... But now it's Southeast Asia. He, he found people, these, these conferences and churches and ways to go serve as a teacher and mentor in, in Southeast Asia. And I was about to ask, what does he do for a living? Well, know. he was on staff at that church mm-hmm. uh, at the warehouse. Or not the warehouse, I guess at Warehouse Christian Ministries. Because I was involved with a church called The Warehouse in Aurora, Illinois. Okay. And a lot of people mistakenly think that they're the same. They're not affiliated at all. Mm-hmm. And it had nothing to do with The Warehouse in Chicago. 
which is where house music. Oh, oh, yeah. It was largely a, a gay no. dance club, right? No, um, but Steve also either started or was a, affiliated with. I can't remember um, a group called Cana, C A N A, and Christian Artists something. I can't remember what it all stands for. But he basically did conferences and networking of Christian artists, but like in Indonesia and Bali, you know, all over the Southeast Asia. His role at the church supported that, you know, so he he could travel around and do that. So all the way back in the nineties, he would be back. He would be traveling in Southeast Asia and then uh, meet somebody and record with a little uh, disc man or a digital recorder or a tape recorder just the sounds mm-hmm. and then come back and create loops of those sounds and then do his poetry over those things. You know, so it's very much in the spirit of what was what he was doing at the very beginning mm-hmm. plus he was writing he was writing books um short books and poetry books and but he was just a and is a resource builder mm-hmm. in whatever country there were people that were like we want to talk about integrating our faith uh into our art without reducing it to some mm-hmm. silliness he would be there and he's currently doing something that is really amazing and i sat with him last fall and he explained it i will not do a very i will not do it justice trying to explain it but he's gone through the entire gospel of john and he's he's identified really i would say as a theologian he's identified the artistic nature of how john was describing the events of of jesus's life that John does it in a way that that integrates Hebrew uh, Jewish artistic uh, sensibilities with what were then modern Greco-Roman logical emerging thoughts. And he was doing this artistic dance between those things. And Steve has identified that stuff and he's turned it in and he synthesized it into a, a model for how we in a culture that in the culture that we are in now we can learn about how to to do this by looking at the gospel of john i have a couple pieces of paper that i'm going to keep and someday i'm going to frame them he's got a sharpie on this big piece of paper and he's just scribbling all over Mm -hmm. it trying to just i love it because uh, steve is humming at a frequency that is just above most of my ability to hear and i've always said i've got to keep him in my life because like i need that frequency but and i do think he's also he's writing more music and he's he said that he does have some hopes to do some more uh a lot of us have been wishing uh like why aren't you doing you know another love in the western world or another emotional tourist or something but it's not until you really spend time with them that you realize that as great as that music was that was just another it wasn't really the primary thing, but that's just mind boggling to mm-hmm. us. And that reminds me kind of of David Byrne. Like, I think that that's, that's the same, like David Byrne could go do a Brazilian uh, thing or go do this weird thing because it's really pursuing that artistic uh, experience. That's, that's so motivating for him. It's not having hits. Mm-hmm. It's not the thrill of burning down the house or the thrill of, you know, some everything on the radio. That, that's not it. It's about that thrill of artistic pursuit for for people like that and that 
when you talk about Steve Scott, you're talking about someone who's got that truly artistic sensibility, but also now has 50 years plus of theological training and thinking and community building. And that's just a treasure that I've, he's a singular uh, original of the species in that regard. So he's a hero for sure of mine. I'm just an emotional tourist and call this a hardy romance. And so sad we couldn't make the connection. Call us victims of circumstance. Next up, Bourgeois Tag. Two plugs. One is Aaron Smith, my favorite drummer in the world. Aaron has, uh, I think, a two-part interview with Brent Bourgeois on his radio show, which you can link to. It's a, it's not really technically a podcast, but it kind of functions like one. Inner Talk. Inner Talk Radio. Right. Um, Brent Bourgeois, just a brilliant songwriter, producer, musician. And uh, in the 80s was in a band called Bourgeois Tag with a guy named Larry Tag, so it's just their two last names. To this day, i got to double-check that I'm spelling Brent's last name properly. It's kind of funny because you think it's it's some sort of commentary on... Bourgeoisie. Yeah, like yeah. playing a game with each other, um, which is very clever, but uh, it's not... Well, maybe it is, but it's also their <laughs> actual name. But uh, to me, this band was one of those many bands that was so good, they should have been the next big thing in pop music. I'm not talking Christian music. This was not a Christian band. They were not from the Christian. They were on Island Records. They were a mainstream band. They were coming out of the alternative mindset, but they were doing music that was very mainstream, very accessible. The first record uh, came out in 85, I think. And then this, or maybe 86, 86. And then the second record in 87. I think that's what it was. And the first record's a little weirder, a little bit more alternative. So the first record was uh, just called Bourgeois Tag, and then the second record is called Yo-Yo. And the second record produced by Todd Rundgren. I got the first record at Cornerstone. Now, the thing about Bourgeois Tag, their only kind of connection to the cornerstone type of world is that they came from the Bay Area and there were friendships that had been formed between them and people like Charlie Peacock and Mike Rowe and the Exit Records community. Didn't Charlie Peacock write one of the songs on Yo-Yo? On Yo-Yo, the second okay. record, yeah. But I was talking about the, the first record. Okay. Um, it, had a, it had a minor hit on it called Mutual Surrender. Why don't we both Mike Delaney, uh, who is a good friend of mine, and he had a booth at Cornerstone that was called the Rad Rockers Emporium. And, and the thing I loved about Mike's booth is that, uh, much like I did later with True Tunes, he kind of blurred the lines and said he didn't really care so much about whether something was Christian per se, mm -hmm. but if there was any kind of dotted line to, mm -hmm. to our world, he would follow it. And Bourgeois Tag, when you listened to the music, there was this real questioning of 
what was going on in the culture. And throughout it, it was mostly relational. But there was a there was a relational there was a lot of songs that were looking at relationships and the breakdown of relationships. Then there was songs that were looking at society and societal systems and what was happening with the breakdown of that. Not in a very heavy-handed way, nor in the same kind of art school way that the Talking Heads were doing it. So these guys had found a different kind of way to do it. But then there's a song called Electric Train, and it uses this metaphor of first person, the guy describing, I'm going to make myself an electric train. It took six days time. Things were never the same. And he, he makes this train on Monday. I built the track. It looks straight, but it came right back. <laughs> you could leave from here, but, in a, but eventually you'd be back in a year. So he's talking about creating the earth. And he realized that the whole song is God's creation of the world in six days. I built the track. It looks straight. But it came right back. Because it curves so slow. If you leave from here. And then it's like each day as he's making this train, he's adding to it. And what's funny is that finally, you know, basically he's bored. Because the train will only do what he makes it do. So he decides he's going to do something crazy and give it a mind of its own so the train can do whatever it wants to do. And then on Sunday, his day of rest, he sits back and just watch it go. It goes backwards. It goes forwards. It goes too fast. It heated up the track. It started to glow. Pretty soon the train was fried. You know, it jumps the track and everything is, you know. And so um, the <laughs> chorus is Monday, Tuesday, line the railway. Wednesday, Thursday, make it straight. Friday, Saturday, watch out for Saturday. That day was a big mistake. (laughs) (laughs) So it gets a little different. Like he's actually casting judgment Uh on God. Uh You never should have done it this way. Uh What a screw up. And yet it's one of the six day creations who's telling him, hey, you shouldn't have did this. Exactly. But but to me, that's what set the whole album, Mm -hmm. made it even more interesting. Because now I can go back and I can listen to all this stuff and go, these guys are reflecting on relationships, society, with some kind of existential outside perspective. There's no Christian redemptive kind of punchline. But it's also ridiculously good music. That song Mutual Surrender should be something that everybody should be listening to right now. It's basically, you know... We, we can keep fighting. That's not what this is about. Why don't we make a mutual surrender? Why, why, why don't we just stop this? You know, The first record also has a song on it that I loved called, um, it's the first song, um, Changed. And what's funny about it is that in the Christian world, a song called Changed is going to be some kind of testimony song. Mm. Like, I was bad and I'm good. This song was the reverse. It was like, <laughs> I used to be a good little boy mm-hmm. and now I've changed. And I've lost my mind and everybody's in danger. (laughs) So it was the reverse and it was maniacal. His voice, you know, I've changed. (laughs) Yes, I've changed. I think I see what I'm talking about. (laughs) Like it starts with you almost have to lose your mind in order to start to see everything that they start to see throughout the rest of it. And again, as a 15, 16 year old kid, 15, I guess. I was just like, this is so cool because I did feel like everybody around me was kind of hypnotized. Mm -hmm. And unless you go a little crazy, you're not going to see the world for what it is. 
Then Yo-Yo comes out. about yo-yo now there's some stuff that i've only learned later because you get to know people and mm -hmm. you find out the story but yo-yo has a totally different gear that it goes to about the struggles brent was going through with addiction and recovery and and stuff and yes charlie peacock who had been a friend of theirs for years um gets involved in uh in that record and they do a song that charlie co-wrote with them Yo-Yo is definitely swinging for the fences in terms of calling in the big guns with Todd Rundgren as a producer. Mm -hmm. They have a ballad, I Don't Mind It All, which is perfect. I mean, and it got on MTV and it got it got into the top 40, I'm pretty sure. And it's just this Beatles-y, beautiful, and to me, it, it's a ballad, it's a love song, but it's even that, it's brilliant in its lyrical twist about saying, like, I'm telling you I don't mind it all. I'm telling you this thing, but honestly, everything else about it is saying it's driving me nuts. Like the, the breakdown is still, it's like a rock in my shoe. I can't get over it. But I don't know I don't So the honesty in it is just, it's just fantastic. There's a couple lines and I don't mind at all. Misery loves company, but she will never foot the bill. Mm -hmm. uh, that line as a kid, I was like, what? <laughs> I mean, there's a propensity or a, a seductiveness to misery. And in my life, I was going through some crap. I was going through some serious crap. And there's a temptation to sit in your sadness, to sit in your misery. And that line, misery loves company, but she'll never foot the bill. You're going to pay for it. So the sooner you can get over this, and then that, that line again, several years ago, I said goodbye to my own sanity, yeah. <laughs> but I don't mind at all. And, and it reminded me of that first song on the first record, like whatever we call sanity, what, what is that? Like, are we just saying that it's sane to accept everything the way it is? Is, is using alcohol or drugs to medicate ourselves to this pain sane because everybody says it's okay? Like, what is sanity? So again, 16 years old, this thing comes out and I obsessed. I played it over and over and over. And I, I was like, this is a bar. The, and the other thing is just the musicality of it. The four members of the band were ridiculous players. The bass lines on that thing are insane. The keyboard stuff that Brent is doing. Larry Tag, the guitar player, and they're both singing. Unbelievable stuff. And the there's like R&B. There's like, like an R&B... DNA to it with a lot of this alternative stuff but but a lot of alternative music had its roots more in punk and rock and R&B was not brought into alternative music very much mm -hmm. the thing that with bourgeois tag that I think was so fun is I at least for me I also listened to a lot of Motown and soul stuff and I could hear that I didn't I never heard the phrase at that point blue-eyed soul and realized they're talking about white people singing soul music mm -hmm. and to me at that time anyway Hall and Oates I didn't get it I get it now mm -hmm. but at the time it was just 
silly. I didn't understand it. So to me, bourgeois tag was like hauling oats for smart people. And I mean, it's arrogant to say, but it was like, now I can go back and hear a lot better, a lot more thoughtfulness in hauling oats than I could when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to look for it in bourgeois tag. Mm -hmm. It's just right there at the surface. Songs about infidelity. You know, what's wrong with this picture? This thing about uh, people that are cheating on each other and getting caught in it. What's wrong with this picture? Every song was perfect, and you thought, oh, this is it. This is when they're going to break open. This is like, they're going to be on tour with Peter Gabriel. They're going to be bigger than Peter Gabriel. They're going to, and crickets, yeah. and then it just goes away. And then you find out, you know, that Brent's on a certain spiritual path that the other guys aren't on, and I think that sometimes there's there's a serendipity in the world, and success can be the thing that destroys certain mm-hmm. people's lives. And now I've been around this long enough to go... As much as I would have loved there to be a third and fourth and fifth bourgeois tag record, I'm, I'm glad Brent is still alive. <laughs> right. so, and Brent had went on to do some incredible solo stuff. A couple of, couple of mainstream records, and then he did some uh, one Christian record, which it, it's actually, like, I would call it a worship record. this progressive kind of element to it. Uh, he even worked in the Christian industry as an A&R guy and producer for a while, but he was too good for the mm-hmm. for the CCM industry. It didn't last long. Um, the other guys, too, we talk about Bourgeois and Tag, but the other two guys, uh, Urbano, Lyle Workman is like one of the top guitar players in the world. Like he, The list of people, if you look him up, that he's played with on their records and in their live bands, it's ridiculous. Is it one of them a historian or something? Oh, Larry Tag, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he's written several uh, books and he's a teacher, a history teacher, yeah. When you go back and you see the success that all members have had since then, Mm -hmm. you go, okay, yeah, it makes sense that that group was as good good as they were. The fact that the two records aren't on Spotify drives me nuts. That was exactly what I was about to say. You can't buy them digitally. Yeah. You have to either buy the vinyl or a CD. Uh, somewhere in my archives, I have. I used to get the CDs, and they were all from Japan. They had Japanese, you know, language on them because, and so I still have at least one of each CD. Plus, I have a great live CD of them playing on the King Biscuit Flower Hour from really? the, with Todd Rundgren um, from the Yo Yo Tour. Is it? A Japanese release? No, it wasn't released. It was just for the radio, for the King Biscuit Flower Radio Show. Okay. But they put it on CD to send out to oh, all cool. of them. And vinyl. It wasn't oversold? No. Or? Oh, man. No, it wasn't licensed for sale. It was just for radio. But they printed it up to send to radio. So there's a handful of copies out there. I cried like a such a great band and one of those groups that that for me was a, a benchmark like when i started the true tunes podcast that was one of the first on our jukebox that mm-hmm. i said i got to talk about this i got to get this I gotta, like one of the first episodes we put that on there um 
And I just found a copy of Yo-Yo on vinyl at a record store, and I bought it again because I'm going to use that as a giveaway at some point just because it's like, this. Yeah. i got to keep giving this to people. It's so good. And now that vinyl's made such a comeback, it's like, I just can't believe that those records aren't available. I don't understand why Universal, who owns Island, doesn't put that out. It doesn't Especially... I remember I Don't Mind on the regular yeah. radio. So you would think they would want to capitalize that, that people being nostalgic. They're clueless. They, they have so much stuff. When companies get that big, they yeah. own so much stuff that they just don't. That's true. It's I like you, that. you know, you bought a shopping mall and you're one guy. And- and lastly, Prodigal. I saw Prodigal, I was probably 13. I was a kid. They opened for Petra. How would you describe them first? Yeah, see, Prodigal was an interesting band. There's definitely elements of progressive rock in there, which as a kid was hard for me to understand. Yeah. Like, I didn't, I, it was a little over my head. Kind of reminds me of like Toto and Asia a little bit at times. Uh, I guess, but to me... Toto was not. They were a little bit more prog. I think they were a little bit more. Well, and if the you thing listen, is they up, only did three albums, and so it's like the first record was more rock-based, progressive. Mm-hmm. Then they get more techno. They get mm-hmm. more into keyboards, and then the third record, if you go back and listen to it, it's just a flat-out '80s new wave, like almost like what Dire Straits did when they were trying to when they were doing keyboard-driven drum mm-hmm. machines, that kind of stuff. Um, there's not that much prog. But it's still interesting. The thing about Prodigal was that um, they were really good musicians and they were writing really interesting lyrics. And even like the first album cover has an MC Escher, a kind of an altered MC Escher cover. And you're, as a kid, I was like, whoa, and I didn't know who Escher was. That's, uh-huh. They were my introduction to Escher. Everything about it was interesting and kind of deep. And um, when I saw them play, I'd never seen, again, it was my very beginning phases of even going in this world, but I'd never seen a band like pushing against all, like, what is this? Is Mm -hmm. this, it's not hard rock like Res Band or something like that. And it's not even corporate kind of arena rock like Petra. It was, it was different. And and the keyboards and the, the synthesizer kind of, arpeggiated do, 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 mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and then the guitar stuff was integrated with just that's what I mean by the progressive so Asia I guess a little bit but Asia still had those big hooks and Prodigal didn't usually care about huge hooks but they had a singer with this crazy voice like this just big voice and then they had these songs that were really really interesting so I remember getting that first record and finding so much interesting stuff. The lyrics were like Invisible Man, I remember was a song on it that just really, really, um, I was like, what is going on? And again, as a young musician, it set the bar pretty high for me to go. To me, DeGarmo and Key's second album, Straight On, still stands as one of the greatest 
if you're going to call it gospel rock, I like gospel rock better than Christian rock. Because as soon as you say Christian rock, it just, the word suck immediately feels <laughs> like it should come next. Because yeah. it just doesn't make sense. Like, it, it, the gospel and rock somehow went together better. Because you could almost imagine gospel is a genre and rock is a genre. Yeah, I guess it'd be Christian like... Christian isn't a genre. Yeah. Christian is a limitation or a description. Yeah, or it'd be a, like, I'm in a Muslim rock band. You know, it was, <laughs> right. You know, All you're doing is limiting it. Yeah, yeah. You're just saying, oh, it's for this audience. Yeah. Right? But gospel is a genre. Mm. And so you say gospel and rock, you go, okay, I get it. It's like saying jazz and rock or it's like saying polka and rock. Like you can at least go, <laughs> okay, I'm talking about two genres coming together. Right? Yeah. So, so to me... DeGarmo and Key's second album, Straight On, is one of the absolute pinnacles of the definition of what gospel rock can be. And it stands the test of time. And then when I hear go back and listen to Prodigal's first record, and you realize that it comes out two years after that DeGarmo and Key record, and it's different. It's not that Memphis bluesy soul kind of thing. It's this more brainy... Ohio-based kind of thing. And, and you go, okay, I can see these as tent poles. And as a kid, I remember Petra being so impressive because of the lights and the show and all that stuff. And there were songs on those first, not not first, uh, the first Petra records to me, More Power To You, not, Never Say Die, and Not Of This World Were The Way. The early stuff was just bizarre. The first record was like bizarre kind of hillbilly music. And the second one was like uh, prog, weird, Zeppelin-y mm -hmm. folk thing. And then the third one was soft rock. But those three right around that I'm talking about were impressive kind mm -hmm. of arena rock things. Mm -hmm. And as a 12, 13-year-old kid, it was like, so, so Petra was doing that. And it was impressive. It was bombastic and big and mm -hmm. hooky and all that stuff. And, and But then Prodigal was kind of like this quiet, smaller club you could go into and, and go, okay, I know there's stuff I don't understand here, but these guys are going to teach me something. And DeGarmo and Key, they were like serious musicians from the South that were going to show us how it was done. And now I can still go back and see those as kind of tent poles. And then Larry Norman as that solo artist sort of guy you've got a pretty good template for going, okay, you could hold those things up to the world and say, here, this is what we're talking about when we say gospel rock. And I think most people would go, all right. Now, Prodigal migrates into kind of a, a synthy new wave thing. Very, still very, until their second record even um, did this thing where they, they put an embedded computer code secret message, what they call the run out, which is... Um, yeah. The needle goes into the this final permanent loop at the yeah. yeah when it gets to the inner button. There's this little sound you hear, and if you took that sound and you somehow got it into a Commodore 64 computer, it would run a program. Wow! And the program would say <laughs> the title of the record or something. But it was like it was the earliest, most simple version of basically taking this sound and if you could do it right, you could. If you were a total computer nerd in 1985 or 84 uh -huh. or whenever that was, which I was not, but I heard about this and it was like, that is the coolest thing yeah. ever. They put computer stuff on this, which I think it was called Electric Eye. Like the whole thing fit this. So they're way ahead of the, the game.
So anyway, I, I've been working on this movie, and it's the movie set, set in 1986, and I've been going back and listening to a lot of that stuff, and I've come to a new appreciation. As a kid, I'll admit, the third, I think it was called um, Just Like Real Life, uh, I didn't, at the time, I, it felt too mainstream to me. Like, mm -hmm. at that point, I was getting into really weird alternative kind of stuff, and Prodigal was seeming too... Uh, normal. Mm -hmm. I went back and listened to it recently and, and it's a lot better than I thought it was. In fact, all of the records are a lot, a lot stronger than as a kid I was able to really appreciate. They were almost too good for their own good, you know. And um, they signed also with a bad label. They, I don't know that there were very many good labels back then, especially for a genre that, you know, the the, the real world wasn't interested in and the church was ready to crucify. But right. um, they signed with a particularly dubious um, outfit and um, didn't really have any support. So the fact that they made three records was kind of a miracle. And I recently connected with Rick Fields, uh, one of the members. Uh, it's funny, I was driving back and forth to uh, Georgia a lot working on this movie. And one day when he got my, we finally connected and talked. And he's like, we ended up, I had all this time because I was just driving. And mm -hmm. so we talked for a long time and I got, I got a lot more history. And um, he told me Lloyd Boldman was the singer who had, who had passed away several years ago. I had met him just on the phone back during the True Tunes days because he did a solo project as well. There's a man, there's a broken man asleep without dreams. Nice guy, um, but I, you know, we weren't like close friends or anything. Mm -hmm. But I had not met Rick until just this last year. And uh, he's still making music. And, and there's also an interesting connection. They're from Cincinnati. And uh, there was some overlap between their world and the world that ended up spawning over the Rhine. Uh, Servant, uh, which was a band um, that uh, there was some French, some mutual friendships. But Sandy and Owen Brock, who were part of Servant, they're also from Cincinnati. They're in Cincinnati today. And um, they're connected to that. And Linford from Over the Rhine was friends with and worked with a lot of these guys. So again, what I love is finding out, and it's almost invariably true, that when you find, I say almost invariably, isn't that cool? Yeah. Um, only a writer can do that kind of thing. A postmodern writer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but what I find to often be the case is when you stumble upon artists, especially in this world of that's doubly or triply complicated, you're trying to make music that is creatively a little bit out of the box and has some kind of spirituality to it that's going to get you in trouble with both the marketplace and the faith community. Mm -hmm. I almost always find that those things happen in the context of a community. You don't hear about these great progressive imaginative denominational bands that came out of some conference, right? right? That just doesn't happen. I don't know of any of them. What you find is there was a hive in this mm -hmm. city or in this country, in this area this region of like-minded pilgrims that found each other and because of that they started experimenting and then because of that there was a small audience 
and they encouraged each other. Right. And that's what I heard was the case with Prodigal. You know, that they just found each other. And I remember this this little indie band that I just fell in love with back in the early days of True Tunes called the Willoughby Wilson Band. And, you know, right. nobody's heard of this group. But, <laughs> but I loved this cassette. And I sold it because I loved it. And I told people about it. And, you know, if you're excited about something, you talk sure. about it. I played it in the store. And and I remember there was a song on it called Ready for the Storm. And later I heard that song on a Rich Mullins record. And I was like, and I asked Rich. And he, he knew the guy, one of the guys, they were friends. Well, it turns out that guy was connected to Prodigal. He, he, they, were, they were all from that same... Hmm community and Rick connected all those dots for me that oh. they were all friends and they were all from the same world and you always wish oh this band could have if they'd gotten on MTV now the other thing is they weren't like the best looking they, they didn't have that kind of like Toto like there's a reason there's no pictures of Toto on their <laughs> yeah. album cover yeah. they, were, they were musicians they, right there was an era when um, it wasn't about you know your physical appearance right. it was about your talent and, right. and Prodigal and a lot of a lot of the best bands were, were that so you try to make you try to compete in the MTV era and it's got to be music videos and it's got to be mm-hmm. sex appeal and it's just nonsense like it's that's stupid um, but musically, I remember thinking there's cuts on here that if it made it to FM radio, mm-hmm. like it should be able to compete. The thing about their songwriting was that they didn't pander. They didn't write songs designed to propagate the ghettos and, um, kind of just maintain the whole us versus them thing. They were inwards searching for hypocrisy they were shining a light on things they were and i think that that appealed to me but that probably appeals to everybody and then when they did shine it outwards it was on culture and hypocrisy Mm -hmm. and and even when they did that on things like just like real life or whatever it was it was when you find hypocrisy in the world it's usually a reflection and extrapolation of the hypocrisy in yourself Mm -hmm. and so it's everybody can relate to that right if you're in a mood to hear more of what we talked about today steve scott at least has come up a lot recently including in the corner back by the woodpile episode 222 with musician poet and former japuza commune member jace sievers and on number 203 with Alternative Records' Randy Layton, who talks not only about working with Mr. Scott, but the 77s, Robert Vaughn, and others in that solar system. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 